hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have had to evacuate through Russia or were forcibly deported there. They have experienced terrible things like the filtration camps on the borders, separation from families, cruel interrogations by Russians, and being forced to live in another country, the enemy's country, without money or documents in many cases. Left stranded and struggling to leave Russia by themselves, some, like children, of course, do not even have the option to try to return home or get to Europe. Dinara Khadlova is a Ukrainian journalist and media communication specialist who's been reporting on aspects of the conflict in 2022. Dinara has a master's degree from the UK, which gives her a unique Ukrainian-British perspective on the conflict. She is expert at creating articles and interviewing people, skills she used to support a hard-hitting report created by Sky News on the Ukrainian families forced to say goodbye to their homes and loved ones and flee. In some cases, people were deported to Russia, and it's these tragic, harrowing issues around flight, deportation, and filtration that we'll be exploring in today's episode. Dinara, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the channel. Uh, hi, Jonathan, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me, I'm glad to be here. Well, you've heard many stories of people who have experienced this deportation, and in some cases, filtration. And you believe the world should know more about Russia's war crimes and the horrors that Ukrainians are enduring because of Russia's brutal war, don't you? Yeah, yeah, sure. When I was doing my research, uh, I was interviewing like dozens of people and the stories that they told me, uh, they're just they're just terrible things they experienced uh, when having to flee somewhere from, from the very like, um dangerous uh, places and then what they experienced uh, in russia um i think it's very important to know uh what russia is doing to these people uh how they are forcing ukrainians to evacuate uh to russia or through russia and um, putting them in filtration camps uh interrogating them like putting physical psychological pressure on them so like in many cases there are lots of war crimes going on and uh, of course we should uh, pay attention to them and uh, tell the stories to as much people as we can and that's what i'm trying to do actually no it's it's incredibly important work and i know that occasionally there are stories in the western press but for something that's happening on on such a, an incredible scale it's massively underreported. Um, I mean, I've seen a figure that approximately two million people were deported. Do we do we have any accurate numbers or any real sense of how many people are involved in these crimes? Yeah, actually, um, actually, it's impossible to to count like the exact number of people who are deported because, um, like, uh, it's very difficult to understand who. Uh, who were deported, like forcibly deported there, who uh, came there, like having no other options, uh, or who just uh, went to Russia, like voluntarily. And um, like different institutions are given different numbers. So uh, yeah, Ukraine is uh, given numbers about like from one, six million 
1.6 million to 2 million people. Um, uh, the UN just repeats Russian numbers and actually uh, is not indicating that not all of these people are proper refugees. Some of them were deported, forcibly uh, displaced there. Um, and um, the US State Department, uh, I think they also uh, announced the number uh, according to their sources. Uh, so they said that uh, on, in July, it was between uh, 900,000 um, 900, to 1.6 million. So it's, it's very like a big range between these numbers and it's really difficult to understand the exact number uh, because people who are being forcibly deported there, they often don't have uh, any like tools of communication with their relatives, uh, people who they left in Ukraine. And um, actually it's really, it's not possible yet to, to, to realize the, the whole like scale of this crime and the whole scale of um, deportations of Ukrainians to Russia. Absolutely, and I, I imagine it's uh, you know Russia isn't putting out accurate uh, numbers. They're probably not um, recording people's identities or names accurately. Uh, we see the sheer incompetence and uh, callous actions of the Russian government suggest that they wouldn't really care to uh, to log all those names. Um, and I guess the Ukrainian government is not in a position to do that because. In many cases, um, you know, the family, especially in the case of children, uh, it could be the parents uh, have been separated. It could be the parents have not survived. Um, this process is, is almost one that has to wait until the uh, territories that are currently occupied are liberated, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because Ukrainian authorities just don't have access to these people and uh, often they, they just they can't communicate with them. Uh, they can find out what, what's really going on, uh, and especially if it uh, if it's about children, of course. This is it, and children have very little choice in this. And um, I know we we're going to sort of concentrate on this quite a lot because it's probably one of the most tragic aspects of this. Many of their children were forced to flee, and they won't have documentation. Uh, some of them won't have the phone numbers of their parents or relatives actually written down. Um, they may even have been told that their parents gave them up or their parents didn't survive. So they may have been told some terrible stories and lies um, once they arrive in Russia. Yeah, yeah. And uh, not only they can tell these children that their parents don't want them, uh, they like refused uh, from them, but uh, also uh, quite often... Uh, even when these children go to Russia with parents, but uh, mom or dad or both parents, they don't have this documentation with themselves that like proving that they are parents of this child. Uh, there are lots of cases when Russian authorities just uh, took away these children um, because these parents don't have these documents with them. And they're just saying to them, it's like, you can't prove this is your children. And they're uh, putting these children to 
uh, like special places, maybe some educational institutions or like orphanages. And then uh, they're finding uh, them new parents, Russian parents. And actually they, uh, in May, uh, Vladimir Putin signed the decree uh, that simplifies um, uh, obtaining this Russian citizenship for uh, Ukrainian children. And uh, actually he did it uh, so that Russian people can easily adopt Ukrainian children uh, that were forcibly taken from uh, Ukraine. And uh, it's going like on a huge scale and uh, actually Russian people, I think they're even um, being paid for this, for taking Ukrainian children. Uh, so yeah, with children, it's, it's especially difficult uh, because they, they can't make choices by themselves. Mm, they they're like easily easily coerced uh, and uh, Russians like are using it and they're just uh, mm, telling them that now it's your new home uh, your family doesn't want you to be there uh, and often they they just take uh, Ukrainian children from uh, shelters and some places uh, in the territories where the active hostilities are going on and uh, if uh, these children lost their parents, uh, they just take away uh, these children to Russia and putting them in orphanages and doing the same thing, actually. And of course, I doubt whether they're really documenting this process. So identifying these children, tracking them down later is going to be incredibly difficult, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's really difficult. And now uh, Ukrainian authorities managed to return only 98 children, according to the recent data. And of course, it's a very small, uh, <laughs> a very small number from all children that were deported uh, to Russia. And uh, there is no like universal formula or way to get them back. It's a uh, it's going on like on an individual basis and uh, like basically um, if this child uh, doesn't have any relatives uh, in Ukraine, maybe they, maybe they died, maybe these relatives don't know about like where this child is, it's, it's very difficult and almost impossible to get them back because it's always going on either through relatives or uh, some volunteer organization, NGOs, but uh, again, children can't do much by themselves to save themselves, so they're just staying there and Russian authorities are just doing to them what, what they want to do and they're, they're actually doing everything to, um, to basically make them Russians, so they're telling them that uh, is their new home uh, this is a very good place for them. Of course, uh, they don't allow them like uh, learning Ukrainian language, of course. And uh, they're like, they're watching their parents with propaganda and saying that uh, like, mm, Ukrainians and Russians are basically the same. And uh, it's just your like new home because now it's dangerous out there. And here it's safe, and uh, you can have uh, like a loving family and all of this. 
And of course, you know, on that to two topics there, really, of language and loving families, I mean, I doubt very much uh, that uh, the Russian system is doing background checks on the adopting families. It wouldn't be the same standard that you would see uh, in the West. So some of those children may end up in being relatively safe environments, even though it's still a war crime. I and mean, there's no doubt that it is definitely a war crime to do that. Uh, whether those children are well cared for or not. But other children are going to end up in potentially um, really sort of terrible and and, and abusive um, uh, relationships uh, with the people they're placed with. Nonetheless, even the families that give them material assistance, as you say, uh, you know, will be discouraging them from speaking Ukrainian, learning Ukrainian, having any communication or connection about their history, culture, and identity. Um, and, and that in itself is also classed as a war crime, I believe. Yeah, sure. So um, they're basically trying to, um, to destroy this Ukrainian identity and to uh, make these children think that this is like basically one nation, there is no Ukrainian nation, it's all like, uh, uh, some nationalist stuff and uh, actually um, bringing children uh, from the country that is in war to another country uh, and raising them there it's uh, actually a sign of genocide, genocidal war and it's one of the you know, things that Ukraine is using to prove uh, that Russia is committing a genocide in Ukraine. And uh, of course, um, it's a huge tragedy for all of these uh, families who, who lost their children and don't know where they are. And for Ukraine too, because uh, it's a lot, of, a lot of young people, a lot of uh, children that uh, potentially um, will not return to Ukraine, will stay in Russia, and actually um, will be made into Russians. And in this way, uh, Russia is trying to solve some demographic problems. And uh, of course, they're losing a lot of people in this war. And in some way, they're just replacing them by Ukrainian children. And uh, of course, they're making them Russians. They're, uh, they're forcing them to assimilate in Russian culture and and forget that actually uh, they are Ukrainians and forget about their national identity and all of this. And of course, it's much easier when it's a child. Um, so this is a clear strategy um, that they're doing and it's not like a one-off thing. Um, so yeah, it's a huge tragedy. And, and of course, for people who think that this might be, you know, just something to do with Putin and the current regime, this is a behavior that we've seen many times in history before. And it has terrible echoes, doesn't it, of the Stalinist policies where Stalin deported populations uh, en masse from Chechnya, from um, Crimea and the Crimean Tatars. Um, and even, you know, countries within the Baltics and then, uh, you know, around the entire Soviet Union. This is exactly the kind of behaviours 
that we saw in the past being repeated in the 21st century. It's, it's quite horrifying to think, isn't it, that this is not an aberration, that this is actually an instrument of policy uh, that Russia has adopted generation after generation to impose its control over people within its empire. Yeah, sure. It's it's not a new thing at all. And Russia was doing it for a very long time, even before uh, Soviet regime. And uh, they were deporting not only Ukrainians, but members of other nationalists and uh, ethnic groups. And uh, they, the first mass deportations of Ukrainians under the Soviet regime actually were in the in the 1930, uh, and uh, they are like they were um, reasoning it by uh, saying that these people were like unreliable elements, uh, and uh, most often it it were either either like uh, either social groups like. Um, this was a thing that was called uh, decolocalization. So uh, this uh, rich farmers, uh, the Soviets called them kulaks and uh, they deported thousands of them into the far east, into the very distant areas of uh, Russia. And, uh, and also members of other ethnic groups, not uh, like Russians. Uh, and of course, those who were not um, who were not happy with the regime, actually, and uh, uh, who posed some threat to this regime by um, by wanting to do like to live in a democracy and all of this. And um, yeah, they were doing it like by years, by um, a lot of time, and. Uh, it's actually a very systematic thing, and it's uh, their strategy that they use uh, in their imperialistic goals. Uh, it's like an essential part of uh, Russia's repressive system, and it's not surprising that they're doing it again. Uh, but there is hope that maybe this time it would be easier to return these people uh, to Ukraine because now we have like, more means of communication. It's it's easier than it was back in the 20th century. Um, yeah, but actually it's not surprising at all. It's just uh, the scale is just uh, so, the scale of this war crime and the crime against humanity is just devastating. And um, I think we just, just need to do everything we can to return these people. Maybe not now. Maybe maybe after the war. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's it's very important to to continue talking about it and to remind people in the world that um, it, it's a part of Russia's regime and has always been like that. Actually, and of course, many of the people who've been. Uh forced to flee or physically deported they're not necessarily going to european russia are they i mean many are being sent to very very far-flung and remote uh, parts of russia which of course will make it physically much more difficult to locate them and bring them back yeah yeah they're doing it on purpose they're putting people uh in the most distant regions of russia in the far east uh 
in Siberia, and they're doing it uh, so that these people, uh, so it was more difficult for them to get out from Russia. Uh, and uh, it, it really works because lots of people, when, when they're Putin, when they're uh, displacing Ukrainians uh, to Russia, uh, these people often don't have documents with them uh, because maybe they just didn't take it. Maybe, maybe these documents were just uh, somewhere in the fire. They were destroyed uh, during this, uh, uh, yeah, during the hostilities. And uh, often these people don't have uh, enough money to uh, to try to get out from Russia, especially from this region, because it's really expensive to to move from this part of Russia to Europe, and um, also uh, Ukrainian uh, bank cards don't work there. Uh, you can't use uh, your uh, Ukrainian SIM card, so it's very difficult to get in touch with someone, and. Uh, Often Ukrainians even don't know in the first place when uh, Russians are uh, moving them. So, like at first, they're said that we are moving you to maybe Taganrog or Rostov, which are the border regions uh, with Ukraine. And then after that, they're uh, moving them to another train. And this train is actually going to Siberia or the Far East. And they just don't have any choice, actually. Um, and especially when these people are in a very vulnerable state after spending months in the shelters and uh, after experiencing such horrible things, um, bombings, uh, killings of civilians and all of this, they don't have even like moral resources to, um, to resist uh, this, uh, this Russian moves and to say that no, we don't go there. We will find other ways because it's really, it's really very difficult. And Russian authorities are making it the most difficult as they can, so Ukrainians stay in Russia. And actually, um, they're telling you that um, uh, you will receive some help from the government, like food or accommodation, but all only if you apply for the temporary protection or the refugee status. But uh, when, you, when a Ukrainian uh, is applying to this thing, uh, it's getting almost impossible for them to get out from Russia because these documents actually uh, limit their movements. And uh, on the border, uh, they're just said that uh, you applied for refugee status, so you are staying here. And, and of course, Ukrainians often don't know what to do. And they sign these documents and they agree to these things. And after they're facing like a very, um, very difficult conditions to deal with. And of course, lots of them stay because they don't have really any other choice. So on which borders is this a particular problem? Because I know this is something you, you wrote to me about when we were preparing this interview. And I think you mentioned that there have been issues on the Estonian border uh, with people who have these uh, refugee status, Russian documentation, often 
they've had no other choice. And as you say, to actually unlock any kind of social services, get food, clothing, uh, shelter, they have to. Um, I mean, is this a problem across the entire sort of EU border or are some countries more tolerant uh, than others or is it difficult to know? Um, yeah, actually, I was talking about uh, Russian authorities not mm. uh, letting Ukrainians through the Estonian and Latvian border. Uh, but um, recently, um, in summer, actually, I think it started because I was talking with uh, volunteers in Russia who are helping Ukrainians to, to leave. Uh, so they told me that uh, on this Estonian border uh, in this place called Narva, uh, Ukrainians started to, to get refusals from Estonian actual authorities. And uh, they were said that uh, like either they don't have enough documents to enter the EU because lots of Ukrainians uh, are ending up in Russia without um, like international passport, without the foreign passport, only like the internal Ukrainian one. And, uh, uh, or they just lost their documents at all. And they say, uh, they can say to Ukrainians some things like, um, you spend too much time in Russia. That's why uh, you can stay here and you, you can't uh, cross the border. So it's, it's a really weird thing because I don't know if, if there are some legal reasons like that. But yeah, it happens. Um, but mostly it's Russian authorities who are doing really like extreme interrogations uh, on their borders with the EU. Uh, if, that, if this is Ukrainians and actually this filtration thing that's going on, it's going on not only in the temporary occupied territories of Ukraine, but this process Ukrainians are experiencing also when they're crossing border with Russia and when they're crossing border uh, but, um, with Russia and EU uh, on the Russian side. Mm. Mm, yeah, and uh, there were actually some cases on the border that um, Russian authorities were uh, not letting lots of Ukrainians go and they were just waiting in their car, car line and there were like no um, decent conditions to spend so much time there and uh, this volunteer told me that even there were some deaths so people just died in this line waiting for Russian authorities to let, let them go through the border actually. Um, so yeah, Ukrainians are facing um, like lots of obstacles in Russia in the different, uh, on the different um, like points, and uh, yeah, um, it's getting harder and harder for Ukrainians to leave Russia. Actually, and of course, this problem is going to get worse, isn't it? Because as the Ukrainian army takes more territory and Russia withdraws both its own assets, agents and troops from those territories, there will also be a movement of people. I mean, some will be lucky enough to get across the other way. And I've seen, you know, some videos of people who are actually able to make it through the front lines into Ukrainian territory. And of course, you know, that that's incredible when that happens. But many are going to have to move the other direction, aren't they? Away from the fighting. 
this problem is going to get worse and worse. Um, yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think it's uh, there is no like clear decision to it in the near future. And uh, I want to tell about this uh, this cases when. Uh, when Ukrainians were not like forcibly deported to Russia, but when they don't didn't have any choice, because uh, mo- like often when Ukrainians were trying to leave the occupied territories to the Ukrainian side, these humanitarian columns, these car lines of people, they were just uh, shelled at by Russians, or Russians just didn't let them go through. And uh, of course, these people had to come back and try other ways uh, because they were just risking their lives trying to um, to cross this uh, this place. And uh, also, uh, Russian authorities were often saying to Ukrainians that they don't have uh, a choice to go to Ukrainian side, that the Ukrainian authorities are not organizing any evacuation, um, any evacuations actually, but it was not true. And they just uh, told them that uh, here, um, uh, some buses are waiting for you and they will uh, move you to a safe place. But actually often they were not saying like where. And uh, with uh, this case of this, I was, I was talking to these people actually um, I talked to a girl from Mariupol who uh, fled Mariupol when it was like active hostilities and bombings going on with her boyfriend and her family. And uh, they just heard from someone that you can just walk out of Mariupol and there would be some evacuation buses or that Russian military would help to evacuate. They just went there because they didn't have any other choice. There wasn't any connection in the city. Uh, it was very difficult to find out what's really going on, what Ukrainian authorities are doing. And they just went there. Uh, they sat in this bus. Uh, and this bus um, moved them uh, in this um, uh, occupied territories of Donetsk region that are controlled uh, by so-called DNR. And uh, they went through filtration process. Um, they were like waiting for this process for days, just living in uh, school, uh, like with no living conditions at all. And uh, then they uh, brought them from uh, these filtration camps, those who passed this filtration process, they brought them to uh, Taganrog. Uh, this is a city in Russia that's uh, close to Ukrainian border. And uh, then from there, um, people could just go maybe to their relatives somewhere in Russia or uh, apply for this temporary um, protection or refugee status. And from there, uh, they would be brought to different cities and accommodated in this temporary uh places for Ukrainian uh, refugees. And from there, they would they would just mm, have to deal with it themselves, what to do and where to go. Mm, yeah, so... Mm, this is what it looks like. And it's not always like forcibly like 
putting people in the mm -hmm. I don't know in the tanks and moving them through the border, mm -hmm. but um, it's making them think they don't have any other choice or really um, like leaving them with no choice because this way uh, to equate to the Ukrainian territory is getting very dangerous because they're shelling these places, mm -hmm. these roads. So, of course, uh, lots of people that I talked to, um, they were thinking about going to Ukraine first, to Ukrainian controlled territories. They tried to do it, but they didn't manage to. And then they just had to, had to go to Russia either by themselves or uh, sit in these buses uh, organized by Russian authorities and just go somewhere they didn't know where, actually. And of course, for many who do make it out, uh, especially towns like Mariupol and others, those towns are not only occupied, they're also ruined. So they probably are also thinking that it's better to wait because there's there's literally nowhere for them to go back to. You know, Their homes may no longer exist. Um, people who can help and support them will, will no longer be there. Um, this, this must be going through their minds as well. Yeah, sure, because um, often Ukrainians are having some relatives in Russia. That's a very common thing, actually. And uh, of course, when, when they experienced all of the things, for example, in Mariupol, when they lost their homes, when they lost everything they had, when there is actually no city left, uh, of course, they're thinking about options to stay in Russia because um, they may not have money, they may not have proper documents, they may not have any other options than to stay there and uh, maybe with relatives that would help them, I don't know, to settle. Um, because, and also this is very important thing, because most Ukrainians uh, know Russian and can speak Russian, of course, it's easier for them to stay there because if they go to the EU, EU or other countries, uh, maybe they don't know any other languages. So, of course, they, they're afraid of this. They don't know what, uh, what's waiting for them there. And uh, I think many of them are thinking it's just a easier and safer way. Mm. But, of course, it's a... It's a it's very terrible that they are put in this uh, state that don't when they don't have a choice actually. Absolutely. And uh, if yeah, if Russia was really evacuating people, uh, as it says, uh, they would give Ukrainians an option uh, to go to Ukrainian territory. Uh, if it's like a legal way, yeah, it's a legal way to do it, and. Um, when they didn't have this choice, you, you can't say that it's evacuation, mm. actually. Uh, it's really it's really deportation, it's displacement, it's not evacuation at all. And they'd make an effort, of course, to log the identities of the people. They would uh, create organizations that uh, try to put them in touch with their relatives. In fact, quite the opposite. I mean, the Russian effort seems to be to try to divide people, convince them that there's uh, really no reason to get back in contact uh, and, and to put barriers in the way. Now, you mentioned that actually there's a volunteer organization in Russia. 
and I don't really know anything about that, who is trying to to get Ukrainians back. Um, isn't that quite a risky activity uh, for for those Russian volunteers to do? Because I imagine, you know, the Kremlin does not look kindly on those kind of efforts, on those civic type uh, organizations. Yeah, sure. It's it's not a safe thing to do. And there are several organizations that are helping Ukrainians to leave Russia. Um, one of them is a very famous organization is called Helping to Leave. And they actually have volunteers inside of Russia who are helping Ukrainians to buy tickets uh, on train or buses, to find accommodation, to pay for all of this. They're giving them information on how to leave Russia safely and uh, through which borders. And there are also organizations who are helping Ukrainians uh, who already left Russia and they uh, ended up, uh, for example, in Estonia, Latvia or Belarus, and uh, they're helping the Ukraine, these Ukrainians to get to the final, final destination. And uh, some of them, some of these people uh, are Russians, but they're not based in Russia. And of course it's safer for them to do that. Uh, but lots of volunteers are actually located in Russia, and I also tried to talk to them for my journalistic research, and uh, it was a very difficult thing to do because they are very like cautious about giving their identities, or um, they don't know actually anyone uh, from like close to the authorities maybe to find out about what they're doing because there are. Of course, there were already cases of uh, detaining these people, and um, yeah, it's it's not a safe thing to do. Um, but actually, I think uh, personally that um, for Russian citizens, it's the least they can do to yeah. <laughs> to you know to to pay their responsibility for this and to. Um, to show in, in any way that you're against this war mm. and you don't want this to happen. And, and they're a small um, minority, aren't they? Those I mean, Russian citizens who, um, who understand they're responsible for this war. Uh, and, and there's sorry, a small number of them. I mean, there's a small number of them, aren't there, only? And uh, the majority of Russians, clearly, we see uh are much more inclined to flee the country rather than stay and fight or stand up and help um and of course the risk yeah is far worse for 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 males isn't it on both sides i mean russian males and in fact ukrainians who fled to russia they're all at risk of being pushed into the army uh being pushed to to fight um, and in many cases, you know, the survival rate is 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 not very high uh, if they're, uh, you know, mobilized and sent. But if we focus on the Ukrainian side, the risk of the filtration and deportation process is far higher, isn't it, for men than, say, the elderly or even children? Um, yeah. Because there are many cases of of violent interrogation, torture, and of course, people have disappeared. Yeah, uh, I talked to, when I talked to uh, these people who either went through Russia to Europe or were deported, uh, like all of them told about filtration process 
and how they were going through it. And uh, they told that uh, women with children and elderly people are actually going uh, like comparatively fast through this process, but uh, men of draft age, they are always uh, uh, going through interrogations. And uh, what, what um, I was told from uh, several men from uh, Kherson region and uh, Donetsk regions that uh, they were forced to stand for up to 10 hours uh, in a very hot weather without water, without anything, just to wait for the line for these interrogations. Uh, and then um, when this uh, security, Russian security services interrogated them, they were asking uh, if they have any affiliations with Ukrainian state, Ukrainian government, Ukrainian military. Uh, they were uh, going through all their uh, belongings. They were uh, looking at their phone contacts, photos, everything they had on their phones. And actually these people told me that they have some technology that can um, find some files or contacts that were deleted a long time ago from this phone actually. And if they find anything uh, that uh, shows their connection uh, to Ukrainian authorities or shows their pro-Ukrainian position, uh, these people just don't um, pass filtration, they're detained. Uh, they're detained either in these filtration camps or they put from these filtration camps to actual prisons somewhere in the occupied territories or in Russia. Uh, they just, uh, Russians uh, just take them into the captivity and often torture them uh, and beat them up and put a lot of psychological pressure on them. Uh, and even if they don't find anything. This process is very disturbing and coercive and uh, they're like constantly trying to provoke um, uh, these people to maybe say something uh, in support of Ukrainian government. They actually ask him, what do you think about this war? What do you think about Ukraine? Uh, they're taking all of your biometric data um, and it's obviously legal to do that. And it doesn't have any um, like legal reasons to do such a such thing and um, uh, so the, the goal of this filtration process is to actually uh, to find uh, Ukrainian men or not only men who are connected to the government military uh, to interrogate them maybe to get some information uh, and then to take them as as prisoners and um, Mm, all of these people who I talked to, they uh, they said that they really felt uh, very scared going through this filtration process. And women told me that they were scared that their uh, husbands or sons or brothers would not get out from this uh, from this thing. And um, of course. Uh, they're put under a lot of pressure um, and, can, and can, it, can, it can take like hours, days actually. Uh, people can wait for this filtration process in this uh, 
like special like temporary shelters, maybe in some schools or other institutions, um, is really not good living conditions. And um, about these filtration uh, camps, actually, uh, there is a, a approximate number of uh, filtration camps and Russians created in uh, the occupied territories of Ukraine. It's at least 19 filtration camps. And um, when these people who, are, who didn't pass the filtration process, they stayed there. And uh, actually there were, they were some, so, so yeah, there were uh, several burial sites discovered uh, near this, filtration camps and uh, there are reports of uh, terrible treatment uh, of these people and uh, there are some photos and videos showing that Ukrainians in these filtration camps mostly men they're just like sleeping on the ground uh, don't have like enough food uh, like constantly being beaten up by Russian authorities and uh, of course it's horrible and um, this filtration thing also is very much undercovered because it's very it's very difficult to actually uh, it's impossible to get access to these places but it's also very difficult to talk to these people who who are in this filtration camp because uh, obviously their phone are being constantly monitored and all of this and even that when people left these filtration camps they often don't want to talk about it because it was a very traumatic experience and uh, i think lots of things are just staying under coverage like, like lots of things that are going on in these filtration camps actually now you've worked with sky news haven't you to try to tell some of these stories and your journalism focuses on trying to expose these terrible crimes but it's not getting as much coverage, I think, in the Western media as, as you'd expect. Do you get a sense of, of, of why that is and, and how can uh, you know, the spotlight of media coverage be increased on what is a, a deeply disturbing story? Um, yeah, I think there are several reasons for, for not being covered enough by Western media. And I think maybe the most important is they often don't have access to such information as Ukrainian journalists to, to, and Russian authorities are doing everything they can to cover these crimes. And uh, also, I think um, lots of uh, Western journalists or just like Western audiences, um, um, how to say that, uh, they really tend to believe that um, these Ukrainians are going to Russia voluntarily. And uh, some of these Russian propaganda narratives are really working. And uh, of course, Russian media uh, and Russian authorities uh, are making the world to think that um, what they're doing is they're saving Ukrainians from the war. They're giving them safe, pla safe place. And uh, they, they spend a lot of resources to create this kind of propaganda content to show uh, happy Ukrainians, uh, happy Ukrainian children who meet uh, these new Russian parents. Um, 
and unfortunately, Russian propaganda works in some way. And some people uh, really think that, um, you know, this is a very like popular um, like phrase to say in Ukraine that um, when we are uh, talking about people who uh, don't want to understand what's going on, they, they tell that uh, it's not so clear. There are like two sides to it. But, <laughs> and I think more, like lots of Western media and um, people uh, living in the Western countries, uh, they tend to think and they want to think that there are, there are two both, like there are two sides to it and that uh, there is no like one absolute, I don't know, truth, one uh, right country and one wrong country. And that's why, uh, a lot of them just maybe don't want to know the truth and to look closer and to examine all of the things closer because maybe they just don't want to believe that uh, Russia can do such things. And uh, I think uh, Western media and uh, some maybe Western organizations should listen more to Ukrainians actually, who are the victims of this war and who are telling about what they're experiencing. And uh, I think Ukrainians should be given more voices. Uh, and uh, mm, I think in this way, mm, the Western world and the world uh, in general uh, would know more about Russian crimes in Ukraine and about this horrible genocidal actually war that uh russia is committing in ukraine and i you know i agree with that um absolutely i mean even last week there were articles in the bbc and the guardian where they used the word evacuation uh in relation to Kherson. Yeah. and of course russia is evacuating its agents its soldiers its own collaborators but it's not evacuating the local population. It is deporting and filtrating them. Yeah. And I think there's a certain ignorance and sloppiness in Western reporting, which as you say, whether consciously or unconsciously, will assimilate Russian propaganda narratives. Yeah, yes, I think so too. And uh, actually, it's very sad to see how like Western media, like biggest and most reputable media, are just repeating Russian propaganda narratives, and uh, and they're thinking actually that they're doing objective journalism because they try to uh, to show both sides. But um, uh, you should be very very critical to what Russia is saying, like. Ev like everything that Russia is saying, you should uh, you should doubt it and check it like I don't know five ten times, uh, and always mention that uh, like most of Russian media, their state control, their propaganda media, there is very little independent media state in Russia, and most of them they're not based in Russia actually, and uh, it's really important I think. Uh, to, to increase this representation of Ukrainian voices, Ukrainian media, Ukrainian journalists and organizations 
uh, in the uh, Western media um, like field because for, for really lots of years, uh, Russian voices were heard much better. And, uh, and really often um, Russian people were invited to talk about Ukraine and Eastern uh, Europe. And uh, they were spread, spreading their imperialistic views. Uh, even Russian liberals, uh, lots of them are spreading imperialistic views on Ukraine and other ethnic republics uh, in Russia, for example. And uh, it's really weird to, to invite someone to talk about uh, other country. Uh, invite someone from the country aggressor, from the country who was trying to erase this nation from the world like for a long time, and uh, the country who uh, is having clearly imperialistic views uh, on, um, on Ukraine, on Ukraine's culture, on Ukraine's resistance and the reasons for this war. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the way to, uh, to the world, for the world to know more about these things is to uh, let Ukrainians speak, actually. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it would be as absurd as asking an English nationalist to comment or talk on behalf of, um, you know, independent Scottish voices. I mean, put it in our own yeah. context, we can see how absurd and, and, and actually lazy uh, and unfair that is, but somehow that doesn't get questioned when it's the sort of Moscow perspective that's being put across. I mean, Dinara, that makes the work you're doing ever so more important and critical at a time like this. Um, I want to thank you for appearing on the channel and I want to you know, wish you support in the ongoing uh, research interviews and writing you're doing on this and other important topics. Um, and uh, yeah, Slava Ukraini. Hello, I'm Slava. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you and to tell more about the things that I was researching, very important things about Russian war crimes in Ukraine. And I hope, I hope uh, the world would know more about it and the people responsible uh, would be brought to court and punished. <laughs>